Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Tracy Ryan is a poet and the author of five critically acclaimed novels, including We Are Not Most People and Claustrophobia, which was shortlisted for the 2016 West Australian Premiers Awards. Today, I'm talking to Tracy Ryan about her new book, The Queen's Apprenticeship, the first in a series of three novels focused on the Queens of the Navarre. Tracy Ryan, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Now, Tracy, Navarre. Where and when in history might I encounter one of the queens of the Navarre? There were so many, and some of them were queen's consorts, so married to kings. But the period we're looking at is um, early 16th century. It's a separate country. In uh, the very early 16th century, the Spanish take the larger part of it that's on the what we would think of as the Spanish side. So there's only a tiny little bit of that kingdom left to those who call themselves the kings or queens of Navarre. It's a tiny little kingdom that's lost its greater part to a greater power and sits between France and Spain and eventually will get swallowed up well beyond my book by France as well. So it disappears in our time and just becomes part of France and Spain. And it's also the centre of the Basque culture. Um, it doesn't map exactly onto what we know now, but yes, that's that's kind of region that we're talking about in France um, with in this period, especially all different languages in different parts of France, we think of the French as speaking French, but of course there were regional uh, languages or dialects in that time. So, The Queen's Apprenticeship is the story of two women, one a real Queen of Navarre and the other a fictional character, the daughter of a printer's journeyman. They're socially miles apart. What might they have in common in this so-called period of enlightenment? They both experience, I guess, the power of men over their lives. One of them, I suppose, is more ambiguously gendered, you might say, uh, beginning life living as a female and then finding that life is quite different when you dress as a male and are taken for a male. So in one sense, the, the sense of being a woman and then what that does or doesn't mean, regardless of what level of society you live at, whether you're very powerful and privileged or whether you start kind of on the back foot, uh, there's that to deal with, which was so extreme in that period. It's kind of hard for us to imagine today, I suppose. What kind of life experience might you expect as a queen? What were the constraints imposed upon you by men? In many ways, that depended which country you're in and how much power you yourself had. But certainly uh, it would mean that you didn't get to choose so much whom you married, for instance, and, and marriage was at all levels something you couldn't get around, uh, which is why with my poorer character I chose somebody who didn't follow that path because otherwise it's just lots of childbearing and probably early death in many cases. Um, so a queen might actually have a better chance, but still losing many children along the way, constant pregnancy, uh, being used as a kind of um, an instrument between countries, you know, to make alliances or to break alliances, to uh, serve the power that rules over you as a as a female powerful person as well. So no, not complete liberty, certainly more privileged than somebody at so-called lower levels of society, but but not free by any means. One thing that they did have in common was they were very likely to be raped and more than once. And that just underlined the fact that women really had very little control over their destiny and their body. And in fact, also no recourse. They were expected to remain quiet too. 
Yes, and I think that for me, that's something that when you read in that period, even though we've come such a long way in many ways, it resonates still that we still have those same issues of what can be spoken about, how things can, how people cannot be blamed for what happens to them and so on. Uh, so in the sense, when you're writing about something historical, it's fiction and you're trying to find themes that resonate with today as well that are not just about back then. but And it seems to me that that's very much a current topic too. Even though we have such a, a different um, environment in terms of women's rights, we still have those fundamental questions of how do you deal with those issues of, uh, of sexual oppression. It's, uh, it's an ongoing problem in all societies, I think. Let's talk about your real character, Queen Marguerite of Navarre, a true Renaissance woman, a patron of the arts, but a woman still forced to operate within those constraints but she's kind of a diplomat and a very effective one too. Yes, and the thing is that she was somebody who, as many women in powerful positions did then, found ways to try to enact, didn't always succeed, to try to achieve, whether through diplomacy or in her case through writing, of course, and that's primarily what interested me about her was not so much that she was a queen. I'm very much not a monarchist, but uh, so it's strange to end up writing about such things, but more that she was a writer. And although a lot of her work wasn't necessarily published in the time that she lived, for instance, her tales were published after her death, um, she still used her influence through writing letters, through her incredible network of contacts uh, across the different European countries and also uh, in religious circles, because she was very much someone who wanted to see reform. She wanted to see the the uh, terrible corruption and grip of uh, certain kinds of powers within church circles. She wanted that to change. And to find a way to manoeuvre and do that within the constraints of her life, I think, is is quite an incredible thing that she, that she attempted. And after, in the next book, we'll see after her death, a lot of that goes horrendously wrong and ends up in civil wars and religious, uh, uh, you know, just slaughter. But so she, to me, was an interesting figure who stands on the cusp of that, you know, that she she's trying to find a way to have reform and not make everything fall apart, to have her cake and eat it too in many ways. She copped a lot for it in both directions, actually, because many of the most reformist people said, you're not going far enough, you know, you need to break with the Catholic Church. And, of course, those inside the power structure of the Catholic Church in many cases thought she was an absolute heretic. Um, and she she really hoped, I think, that there would be a way that you could have reform and improvement in religion without having to see everything descend into mayhem or overturn power. And essentially because her brother's the king of France and France is at this point a Catholic uh, country, that that's kind of all tangled up with political power as well. So, you know, to rock the boat in religion is to rock the boat with the king and the king happens to be her brother. So I think aside from the history aspect of it, the part that interested me as a story is you have someone who's been raised her whole life to think your brother is what matters. Your brother is the one who will count. That's where you know that's where you put everything in one basket with him. Uh, what if you then start to realise actually I want something my brother isn't that keen on. I've tried to persuade him, but how, how am I going to negotiate to to see what I want to happen? So in, in essence, it's also a story about a, a brother and sister relationship and that that bizarre triangle of their family in which you know the mother lives through her children and wants her daughter to live through the brother as well. A very uh, tight-knit and strange family interaction. So it's as much about that family interaction in a way as it is about the, the historical uh, material. Louise of Savoy is Queen Marguerite's mother and, of course, mother to the prospective King of France. She's part of the story, but her own journal entries also make their way into this book. 
Why was it important to include her perspective? Well, I hoped that what they would do for the reader is give a sense outside the ordinary action where you see Louise in the story, give a sense of how single-mindedly obsessed she was with the idea of power and of her son being destined for power. That all the, She apparently, it said, uh, put this journal together to get an astrologer to look at what was happening. You know, so this is a record of facts so that you can read about my son's uh, trajectory, his fate. And it really showed every little minor injury that he suffers, everything that happens to him, everything she feels vindicated on is in those journal entries. You know, I did this and I did that and I, I was in the right and I knew this would happen. So it, it helps to build her character, I think. And also, as I was writing and getting to know the characters better, I came to the sense that this is as much a mother-daughter story as anything else. Like, if you found yourself with a mother like Louise of Savoy, what would you do? You know, and she she has, seems to have no scruples. All sorts of machinations are going on at her level to make sure her son retains power. And Marguerite's kind of half aware of them. But it's not like nowadays where you might say, I don't agree with my mother, so I'm not having anything to do with that. You have no choice about it. You're part of that family and you just deal with it. And so that, that's why I wanted to really give that flavour of uh, of who Louise was because she's um, a, a main uh, force and a kind of antagonist in a way too, a real mother-daughter issue going on. And in the second book uh, of the trilogy, we move on to Marguerite's daughter, so you have a different kind of mother-daughter story at the outset there. And poetry is also part of the telling of this story, as are some of the tales from Queen Marguerite's own book of stories. What role did you want these elements to play in the unfolding narrative? Well, I, I've always been interested in the fact that, for instance, poetry didn't always have the uh, subsidiary role that it seems to have, say, now in our culture. It was very much, you know, people circulated poems at court, for instance. I mean, they still now use them on public occasions, if we think about it, at inaugurations at, and, and smaller public occasions like weddings and so on, people use poems, but very much a, a, a part of how people communicated. So she and her brother and others would correspond with each other in poems. So rather than just write a letter, write a poem and send their, their ideas or their news that way. And so I felt I really wanted that to be part of the texture of the story, that in the same way that we probably use um, music or in my time when I was young, mixtapes, you know, people would mix songs for each other. That was a role that poetry played then, if I can make an anachronistic comparison. So to not have it woven in with the story to me, would feel like it wasn't of the period. It really was very much at that level how people communicated and uh, and uh, celebrated or um, you know made announcements of things. Very much part of their lives. So, and really, the poetry is in there. In, in many cases, just little extract of what was written or read on a particular occasion. Because obviously, you can't put a whole book of poems in there. But uh, it, it wouldn't be Marguerite and her circle if it didn't have the poetry somehow in there. And her tales. Um, some of them I've read back as if they were true because I think in many cases they were based on real-life things she'd either lived through or heard about. Um, and so it was interesting to me to try and imagine those, what had really happened. So it's kind of like reading off someone's fiction and imagining what their life might have contained that made them write those things. The book of stories was actually written after the time of my story, but I still kind of worked it in there because I think it took her a long time to, to figure out how to do it. Now, the voice of Queen Marguerite of Navarre, that can be pieced together from the annals of history. But what about finding a voice for your fictional character, Jean Poulain? What do you draw on to create such a character? Well, Greg, it's interesting you should ask that because when I first started to write the book, the first feeling I got, I don't want to sound all mystical here, 
the feeling I got that set me off writing was that I felt like I could hear her voice in my head. And I think it was a product of reading lots and lots of journals and letters and things of the time and the strange kind of way they worded things, the turns of phrase that they use. And I started to try and imagine what would a person be like? She had to be someone who had some level of access to literacy, not total, but because it's much harder to tell the story of someone who can't read or write and has no reference points. So, yes, it was actually through hearing a voice in my head, and that sounds really kind of woo-woo and airy-fairy, but I think that's the case for many writers with characters. You get a sense of a person who wants to be written about, and she wanted to be, or she who becomes he and is both at the same time, wanted to be written about in the first person. With Marguerite, it was more she's the historical figure. She's a kind of third person, uh, just the, the way it fell together. They are different, and I think um, one is, of course, much younger and has a lot more to learn, but this is why the timing is kind of staggered. And the reason I called it the Queen's Apprenticeship was because there's a sense in which the Queen is learning also about uh, apprenticeship as a writer but also as a person to begin, and this is the fictional aspect of it, to begin to identify with other women even if they're not of her class when she is first mistreated uh, by a male friend, the Queen, well, she's not yet Queen at that point, she's Duchess, she thinks I've been treated like a serving wench. And she has kind of class barriers in her thinking that, you know, that's what happens to those kind of women. And as the story progresses, I I hope she begins to understand that this is something where people have to have solidarity, uh, regardless actually even of gender, that uh, people have to uh, identify with others who have like oppressions. So there's that, there's her learning curve. Um, and the Jeanne character has all kinds of lessons, I suppose, of trust and uh, and to overcome jealousy as well. That uh, So you've got a kind of trajectory that they share, even though they're so incredibly different. And um, the Jeanne character, I wanted to have someone who doesn't follow the normal trajectory because, frankly, if you were taking a typical person of her class, born female, she would end up having many babies, losing many of them, and um, probably dead quite young. And so one has to think when trying to tell a tale that will be prolonged, you know, that will actually continue, how might the person's life differ? What is different about this person? And it struck me that um, uh, life is a kind of journey, and so it becomes a metaphor of that, I suppose, and the different stages she goes through on her, her kind of quest to become a printer um, take her all over the different areas of France. And, um, yeah, so I wanted that sense that she she was kind of plucky and she had a bit of a bit of nerve um to go out and do things and try to try to overcome the limitations of her fate, which is kind of like Marguerite in a different way, too, because Marguerite's also trying to transcend what would have been her typical role. She could have just shut up. <laughs> she could have just conformed, and she could have written just little court poems that nobody paid any attention to. But instead, she chose to express her open-minded religious views through her poetry, which got her in a bit of trouble as well. You are also a poet, a translator and a teacher of languages, and your passion for poetry shines through in this book quite strongly. Clement Moreau's poetry is, in a sense, life-altering for Marguerite. But what is Moreau to you and what role are you asking his verse to play in this narrative? He is also, for me, a kind of symbol of a different sort of person. You know, he also comes from a background that isn't royal or noble, and yet somehow in that period made possible a kind of upward mobility where he finds himself in the court, uh, you know, with her brother and in her court. And he 
there's a there's this kind of for me tantalizing feeling that they had a, an incredible closeness that was largely in poetry you know some writers will say oh something went on between them and try and interpret the poems as being he did write poems about marguerite but of course he was also in her employ so you know people wrote poems that flattered he's an intriguing figure to me especially because he mixes this intense religious um again what they called heretic so not a traditional religious person at the time but someone who's more free thinking intense religious thing with incredibly uh bawdy and scatological and uh cheeky poetry uh not all of which really makes its way into the into the text but yeah you get these extremes in this period what's really remarkable in marguerite's writing also you have this mix of extreme religious fervor with what we would consider to be really quite um unsuitable for uh, children type writing and uh, they didn't see a contradiction there in the way that we might now we might say a religious person wouldn't write like that but they had a real space for the bawdy and the sensual and the funny the the just funny some of Marguerite's tales are incredibly um, scatological and really riotous and others of them are very pious and uh, Marot is like that as well and so for me he's just an intriguing figure who represents a possibility uh, that isn't royal and isn't the worker either. It's something in between and just the voice of poetry. And in the second book, his poems go on even beyond his lifetime to become really important as well. So so he's a kind of thread through there even after his death. Well, I look forward to reading the next in the series. And thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. I've been talking to Tracy Ryan about her new book, The Queen's Apprenticeship. It's published by Transit Lounge and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.